Last year while serving a parish in Memphis, a parishioner who doubles as a Hebrew Bible scholar, and I'll just say it was very intimidating preaching in front of him, Sunday in and Sunday out, sent me a copy of a transformative book that should be in every personal library. The book is Womanist Midrash, and a reintroduction to the women of the Torah and the throne. In the book, the author goes through the Hebrew Bible with a fine-tooth comb, excavating scriptures, oft overlooked and ignored characters. The author is an Episcopal priest, associate professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School in my hometown of Fort Worth, Texas, and a Twitter aficionado, (laughs) which is how we first met, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, I think so. If you don't follow her work, you are missing out on one of this era's most creative, compelling, and challenging scholars who is just just as much at home challenging violent passages of scripture as she is lending her ear to the plight of society's most vulnerable. Do not get in her way. (laughs) You will pay. Please join me in offering a warm Mile High Theology welcome to the Reverend Will Gaffney, Ph.D. Dr. Gaffney, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. If you would, just tell us what a day in your life looks like right now. (laughs) Well, this week is, uh, I'm here for a conference, so I don't know that I have typical days. They're sort of days in different phases. Um, If I were not here, I would be teaching Tuesday through Thursday uh, with the occasional meeting. Um, I usually squeeze in a writing block, often in the evening. I like to write while I have TV on in the background. Um, I love to watch uh, sci-fi and action things. Um, I used to write with the cable news on all the time, but that's become so traumatic and injurious that I don't have that on. Uh, In the mornings, I work out most days, and I get a good seven, eight hours sleep most of the time. Wow. So, womanist midrash seemed to burst onto the scene of biblical studies But given your rich career of scholarship, I know that that simply is not the case. If you could just tell us what led you to write this. Really, it's a monumental work. Thank you. I've been interested in the stories of women, particularly in the stories of women who I didn't know, who other folk don't know, who are marginal characters for a long time. But I think it was crystallized in a conversation with my dissertation advisor who had co-edited a volume called uh, the Dictionary of Women in Scripture, which I also commend to you because it lists every woman uh, who has a name, those characters who don't have a name by chapter and verse, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Deuterocanonical and Apocryphal texts in the New Testament. It's the most comprehensive work out there. And just looking at the sheer number of Entries and from her calculations, there are about 111 
women in the Hebrew Bible whose names are preserved, and that's not the daughter of, wife of, sister of, mother of. And most people can get, you know, Sarah, Rebecca, maybe some character one of their aunts is named after, but people can't just count up 111 names. And so I wanted to do a project around those women. One of the things the first publisher I worked with on this volume said, well, if they can't figure out who any these people are in the table of contents, they won't buy it. So you have to have women uh, who people recognize. And so there was some giving in to that. I still would have preferred to do it the other way. But that project had been sort of stewing officially probably since the early 2000s. Wow. Well, maybe mid-2000s, 2005 and after. Amazing. Yeah. And can you, can you just tell us how, how it's been received? What, what sort of feedback have you gotten from students, from professors, from people who have never thought about Scripture in this way, basically from the underside before? Well, there's a long tradition of reading the text from the underside. So when it comes to uh, biblical studies colleagues and seminarians and uh, students of religion, um, that's not new and unexpected. Uh, The particular approach that I take that uh, involves translation and interpretation, uh, drawing on rabbinic practice of interpretation and Uh, the sanctified imagination in in black preaching, that combination of events, uh, of approaches, that was unique to the volume. And the first place I knew that this book was going to be well-received is when uh, you have people that you recommend endorse the book and they write their blurbs on the back. And when they came in, there were so many of them and they were so long that you'll see there's a few paragraphs on the back, but when you open the first few pages, there's just pages and pages of them. And so that was when I knew that this was going to be a successful project. And one in particular, you know, the Reverend Dr. Renita Weems, really is the mother of womanist biblical scholarship. And, uh, well, she sent me a little Facebook inbox note, uh, and she said, you did good, good work. And so that was pretty much all I needed for <laughs> wow. But But then to read the full blurb, she's got a shorter blurb on the, on the back, but her full blurb, you know, I dissolved into tears many a day over that. It's also been well-received by a group that I didn't know before, uh, and those are ex-evangelicals. These are people who have left evangelical church, in particular in fundamentalism more broadly, and what they were looking for is a, a way to remain in relationship with the Bible, uh, but they knew the way that they had been exposed to the Bible was toxic and harmful. And they weren't clear that they wanted to be post-Bible or post-Christian. They didn't know how to do that. And so finding someone like me who is a priest, who uh, is a Christian, who is still in the church, and says... You can ask questions of the text, and you can argue with the text, and you can argue with God, and you can say, even if it's in the text, that's not how we're going to live. Um, that permission was huge, and honestly, the last seven to 8,000 of my Twitter followers have come out of the, my presence in those spaces. Wow. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for, for being a missionary to those people. <laughs> um, toward the beginning of your book, you do a lovely dive into the Ha-Adam, this figure, um, the first human, the first mm-hmm. earthling, mm-hmm. as you translate it, and its multiplication. I'm really struck by your statement regarding the ways this story has been explained before, specifically how Eve is punished for something she never received instruction Mm -hmm. to not do, Mm -hmm. specifically. Can you say more about this for our listeners? So we had a little talk about this before, and what I think uh, people miss when reading... uh, the stories of the of scripture is that the text is a lot like an iceberg and we all know that there's more of the iceberg underwater than there is on top of the water but we don't know what that terrain is like so you don't know if under the water the iceberg is doing this or if it's doing that right and so reading the text in english without resort to the original languages means you just don't know what you're Uh, omitting underneath. So in the two creation stories, the first human that's created is Ha-Adam, the the Adam. And and that M at the end of that word is the sign of a plurality. And so the word Adam is used for all of humanity. And when it's used for that individual earth creature, uh, it's Ha, which means the, the earthling, the earth creature. And so in those early texts, it's not a person named Adam. It is the creature, the earthling. Uh, Rabbinic scholarship has understood that that creation to be uh, uh, multivalent. Uh, That is that all of humanity was in that one skin, so that being uh, included all of what was to become separated out as Chava, Eve. So in that reckoning, the instruction is given to both. But I think a missing layer of this story is that while post-Christian readers have characterized that, that fruit-eating episode as being sinful in nature, that's not what the text says. The biblical text doesn't use the word sin until Cain, Cain, kills Hevel. That's the first sin in the Bible. Um, Disobeying God is not considered sin in that context. The way that story is functioning is to explain the way some things work around the world. And it is very possible that people read that uh, knowing that God put the cookies on the counter knowing full well they were going to get into the cookie jar, right? Amazing, (laughs) amazing. I'm Broderick Greer, and I'm here with priest and biblical scholar Dr. Will Gaffney, author of Womanist Midrash. You put quite an emphasis in the book on the red clay, the red earth Mm -hmm. that the Ha-Adam comes from. How have scholars missed or underplayed that note? I don't know that scholars have underplayed it. I think that because the 
modern biblical studies enterprise is uh, rooted in the enlightenment that <laughs> that the <laughs> that the implications of that were not experienced uh, by the scholars who come out of that movement. And it, it's important for, to acknowledge and, uh, those roots of, of the biblical scholarly enterprise. It's, it's not only the Enlightenment, it's also um, biblical studies has a Nazi history, has, a, has an explicitly white supremacist and fascist history. Um, we have people uh, like Kittle, who's responsible for so much linguistic work, be, being an actual member of the, of the Nazi party. My, one of my papers at SBL last year was tracing out some of those figures. So it's, it's really important to understand wow. that's the foundation of what's considered modern biblical scholarly enterprise. And so people talk about uh, the relatedness of the earthling to the earth from which it was created, but did not talk about it in terms of what that mean, means for human beings, human bodies, black and brown bodies, uh, what it means that even as uh, linguists will uh, characterize biblical Hebrew as an Afro-Asiatic language, that's where it falls on the table, and some will talk about the ancient Israelites as Afro-Asiatic people, mm-hmm. um, you'll still get a default to European uh, portrayals with no irony, right? I, I do the quote from Martin Note all the time. It's in my first book, Daughters of Miriam, who, writing in the 60s, I'm going to say again the 60s, where were we in the 60s, saying that the uh, Egyptians were wrong for portraying the Nubians as looking like Negroes. He was mm. sure from his house in Philadelphia in the 60s, <laughs> that they couldn't look anything like the people on his TV pressing for voting rights. Mm. Right? He was real clear about that. Wow. So uh, you, you know that part of my social media, media foray was being the only biblical scholar who watched every episode of that god-awful Bible series that the History Channel did a few years, and I engaged all of them on my blog. And in order to make their Adam white, they had their actor emerge up out of a pile of white sand so that he was caked with the white sand and then as the sand came off, he remained white. Mm. Like they had to work so hard to make that work. Exactly. And it's it's interesting... um, Often, a lot of the conversations I'm a part of are more on the side of, you know, discussing sort of white supremacist roots in theology. Um, and, and a lot of your work is talking about the white supremacist roots of this modern biblical scholarship enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, it's just important that they be in conversation and that we always be conscious of biases, even with translators and scholars and so on and so forth. And, and in the church, I, I see a colleague and friend here who was present at a, a 
a particular moment of crisis in the African-American community, and I served Eucharist in that context. And I served it with brown bread, which was the first time she'd ever had that. And having done some training on white supremacy in the church, you often run into this line where folk are really resistant like the image of a black loaf being held up and saying, this is the body of Christ. Mm. For some folk, that's a breaking point. And that's when you know where white supremacy has its hooks in. Well, we also see it in the iconography of the church. Um, but but there, for some people, uh, a black loaf is a bridge too far. And that's telling. Wow. So as we, I mean, I could talk to you forever and all evening, but if you would, just tell us about, um, you talk a lot about biblical illiteracy on Twitter. Um, why is it important that we not be biblically illiterate? Well, you threw me when, when you asked me that question before we started. <laughs> and so what I came up with this. I don't know that it's important that folk not be biblically illiterate. I would rather they not. But what is important that if you choose illiteracy, and and it's a choice, then you not speak publicly about the text or write about the text (laughs) or make policies based on your ignorant understanding of the text or try to constrain the lives and bodies of other people based on your ignorance. I love the text. I enjoy it, even as I wrestle with it and fuss with it. And so for me, it's about getting to know someone to to personify it uh, and explore deeper in the context of that relationship. It's it's a delight. It's a series of treasures, with some other stuff mixed in. And so I don't know why one would not want to, to know more. I know at some point when I nerd out over a letter or a word or a translation, that's too much for some other folk. But I can't imagine why one wouldn't want to lose oneself in the study of the text. Wow. Well, your nerding out has benefited all of us. So thank you. Um, so much for the gift that you are in the academy, in the church, um, in society, your, your social engagement. Um, you're, you are an important person uh, oh in our world, and we are deeply grateful for your presence with us this evening. Oh, Let's give Dr. Gaffney a hand. So we have time for about one question. (laughs) Two. Two questions, um, and if you would, please come to the mic here. Again, this is a podcast recording, so we want to record your question if we can. And if you don't want to record it, then you can talk to Dr. Gaffney after. Um, Thank you so much for coming tonight. My question is, as you were doing the research, what most surprised you? And I'll leave that open to how you were surprised. Mm. 
Thank you, Hannah. There's a constant sense of discovery, even with texts you know well. I wind up reading the Hebrew Bible through every year for my intro class, and I'm often saying, I don't remember that being in there, or, or this fits this situation so well, how did I not, not know? Um, the one uh, set of information that I remember being particularly surprised as I was working on uh, the royal women was I didn't realize uh, for a while that David had more than one daughter, I didn't realize that he had granddaughters in the text and that their names were preserved in the text. So I was, ra- I was rather surprised. I knew his sister's names, uh, and I knew that in spite of being sort of wiped out of the story when uh, he's anointed uh, king, that his mother is very much alive, uh, and she turns up later in the text. But I was surprised to go through and find uh, maybe one, two, three or four of his granddaughters preserved in the text. That was a surprise. Wow. One final question. Uh, Thank you very much for your lecture. I'm wondering what um, advice or lessons you can give us, given the history of white supremacy and male supremacy in society, in biblical scholarship, in the church. um, How in the church can we... What are some ideas for how we can move forward in a, a different way? Sure. Mm. So one thing is read black women, read other women of color, uh, prioritize other voices uh, on, your, on your staffs, in your programs, in your reading, in your art. Uh, I was part of a congregation that was saying, oh, it's too bad, all the windows are white, there's nothing we could do. And I said, well, you know, you have all these spaces in between the windows. Why not commission a series of banners with multiple issues, m- multiple images? They didn't do it because they, uh, they didn't want to, quite frankly. But the, oh, it would be too much to take out the windows and, and people donate them for their grandmother. They thought they thought they had the answer, that they didn't have to do any more work. Um, but uh, just ground your practices in conversation with folk who are, who are different than you are and recognize that it's going to be uh, difficult and uncomfortable and it's not going to be the same old church or the same old Bible study or the same old seminary with a tan. It's going to be completely different <laughs> level engagement, right? That, I'm, you're right. It's going to be a completely different engagement. Not... And your feelings will get hurt. Yes. From time to time. Well, what a joy. I mean, this, I just feel like I'm like breathing. This is great. Um, today is the 26th Sunday after Pentecost, and Episcopalians all over this and other countries heard the priests say that we'd hear, read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest the scriptures. A curious phrase for people who aren't necessarily known for robust engagement with the Bible. <laughs> Hearing reading, learning, marking, and inwardly digesting the Bible isn't just poetic language we use in church, but a posture we take toward the sacred writings of our faith. This engagement is no easy task, as it demands of us honesty, transparency, and justice as we mine the caverns of the ages in order to walk away with a fresh word from God. As we mine, 
May we be surprised about the stories we hear for the first time, the characters we meet for the first time, and the parts of our imaginations that are quickened for the first time. May we read with Dr. Gaffney's attention to detail and her passion for the margins, those overlooked places in history and our texts where God is hiding out just beneath the red clay, waiting to be encountered. Malhai Theology is a production of St. John's Cathedral, an Episcopal community of faith that is welcoming and inclusive of all. I offer special thanks to our cathedral administrator, Michelle Vieira, our communications director, Seth Reese, our youth minister and formation assistant, Christina Rutland, our guest, Dr. Will Gaffney, and our whole cathedral facility staff. Whenever you make time, please recommend Malhai Theology to your friends, subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform, and review us on iTunes. No, really. Review us on iTunes. Seriously. We only have three reviews. They are three great reviews, but it's only three. And the more we get the better our digital visibility will be. (laughs) Have a great evening, and thank you for being here.